0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of Changes. Changes. Well, here we are. We've come to the end of the road of series two in the first week of a second national lockdown in the UK. I had never imagined when we launched this podcast at the start of 2020 that it would be in a year that is, I mean, how many times have we said the word unprecedented, but literally the amount of turbulence and societal change and just chaos and madness that 2020 has brought is really something to behold. Yeah, couldn't have predicted that when we launched changes, but it feels so weirdly timely that we've been able to really uh, zoom in on that word and all the different facets of it and what it means and how it can you know, knock us for six. And also, I think, notably, how quickly we can adapt to it. And 2020 has really become that, hasn't it? It's a year where words where like self-isolate and social distance and masks and all these things that seem really alien and bizarre at the start of the year are now just completely normalized idiom and ways of behaving in our world today. So strange. I tell you what though, this podcast has been incredibly helpful for me uh, in terms of just helping to channel the The chaos of my thoughts into something useful and helpful, and the conversations that I've had have just been so enriching and educational. I don't know, I just really enjoy putting all of my own thoughts and concerns aside for an hour and listening to someone else and listening to someone else's story and hearing how they get on in the world. And there's been some real highlights from the last two series, you know, they're all up there now. And if you haven't had a chance to check them out, please do, there's some brilliant moments. I loved my conversation with Robin. I loved Catelyn Moran. I still get stopped on the street about the Catelyn Moran episode where she talks about kind of being a middle-aged woman and all the things that comes with that Um, I loved Paddy from the last series you know a man who talks about how he got homeless and how he got off the streets and his heroin and spice addiction Uh, in this series Nigel Bromage has, has been a huge one a big talking point in regards to ideological change and how someone can be so filled with hate and so groomed in that way to be part of some of the most extreme far-right movements, neo-Nazi movements in the UK. I also loved in this series bringing you Orla Doherty, and a woman who's kind of dedicated her life to the ocean. And it's a really interesting look at the world as we don't see it. So yeah, there's been so many bro conversations and I'm delighted to bring you the final one this week from someone who has gone through a really incredible amount of change, both situational, and ideological. Uh, His name is Michael Sheen. He is a BAFTA-winning, Golden Globe-nominated actor. Uh, You may have seen him play Tony Blair. He's done that three times now, including in The Queen, alongside Helen Mirren. He's played controversial football manager Brian Clough in The Damned United and David Frost in Frost-Nixon, to name just a few. He won a Golden Globe for his work in Masters of Sex. And most recently, you might have seen him as Chris Tarrant in The Quiz on ITV. Uh, or starring alongside David Tennant in the BBC lockdown comedy Staged. So as well as his phenomenal success as an actor, a few years ago, Michael completely changed his life, focusing on activism and community work. See, he used to be married to an actress called Kate Beckinsale. They have a daughter together, and when she turned 18, Michael moved back from LA to his hometown of Port Talbot in Wales and embarked on this new chapter, tackling problems that face poor communities like poverty, debt and homelessness. Um, you're gonna hear him speak about these projects and and how he kind of made that change and the sacrifices he's made to keep some of these um, projects afloat and the changes he wants to see for communities, not just here in the UK, but all over the world. But that's not before we hear about his big moves when he was young, his first heartbreak, a huge crisis of confidence, bruised egos, relationships, building life in a new country, nearly saying no to one of the biggest opportunities of his career. We discuss it all. This conversation was recorded at home and you can hear his new baby daughter with his partner, Anna Lundberg, in the background. Working from home is the new normal, as we all know. Just another thing that we've all got very used to in 2020. Thrilled to introduce the final guest of series two of Changes. Enter the podcast, Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen, welcome to Changes. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Annie. I really appreciate your time. When we asked you about these change questions, you talked about having so much cataclysmic change in your adult life. But we're going to start with your childhood. So let's talk first of all about the situational change because you moved and then you moved back to Wales, right?
0: Yeah, so my family all come from Wales, although I did one of those Who Do You Think You Are type shows and actually my family originally came from Ireland.
1: Where Uh, in Ireland? do
0: Do you know? I'm not entirely sure now. I did, I did find out, but I can't really remember now. Yeah. But came across during the famine, and went into Cardiff because there was a big Irish community in in Cardiff, and that's where the family developed from. That in recent history, my family yeah. have all been in Wales. Yeah. And my dad got a chance to take a bit of a step up in terms of pay and that kind of stuff at work, but it required a move. So. My mum and dad left Port Albert first, which is where I consider home and our family home. They moved to Newport Mm. with work. That's where me and my sister were born, in Newport, South Wales. And then when Mm. I was five years old, my dad got a job opportunity in the Wirral. So we left Wales and went to England, to the Wirral, Merseyside, Birkenhead, all around there, and lived there for three years. So there's this strange period in my life where... For three years, I didn't live in Wales between the age of five and eight. Mm. Now, I can't really remember going there when I was five. I have a memory of the actual journey. I remember we stayed in a hotel on the way or somewhere and there was a massive dog. Of course, it seemed like a massive dog to me at the time because I was very little. It might have been a chihuahua, (laughs) but it seemed like a massive dog to me, like a Great Dane or something. Anyway, that's the only memory I have of leaving Wales and going to England. But of course, coming back when we left again because my dad then got made redundant and then in order to get work came back home again Mm. because he had more chance. He had more connections there. So we came back when I was eight. I remember that being a massive shift Mm. because by that point, I had a best friend, Stephen, and school and and playing football and all the stuff that you'd have as an eight-year-old. And suddenly, it just wasn't there anymore. (laughs) I don't remember massive discussions. I'm sure my mum and dad talked to me about it and all that kind of stuff. I'm not even sure if I ever said goodbye to Stephen or anything like that. You know, it was just like, Suddenly, we weren't there anymore. Leaving there was a wrench, but then also coming back to a place. This has been quite defining, I think, for me in lots of ways. Coming back to a place that I come from. Do you see it? Like the confusion of that. It wasn't we were moving to somewhere completely new and starting again. We were moving back to the place where my family come from. It's the place I consider my home and where I come from. But I wasn't born there. But I've become very identified with Talbot mm-hmm. and I identify myself with Talbot and yet yeah, I wasn't born there but it's where all my family come from it's the place I have the closest connection to and yet I was at eight years old starting a new school meeting everybody and I had a scouse accent yeah. something that is weird to get my head around now and I was the new boy and I was the the English boy as far wow. as they were concerned yeah. coming in and so I think That affected me in all kinds of ways. Partly, I think, that I always felt a little bit of an outsider in my own home. Right. And always wanting to to be accepted. And that, I think, has never left me. I don't think it's any coincidence I've moved back here.
1: Yeah. Another thing that happened in your childhood, you mentioned it quickly there, was the football thing. And I've heard you speak about this a bit. And you talked about having this obsession with it and then that changing to acting. Tell me about what were you like as a kid?
0: I think as a kid, I was very, depending on who you ask. Right. If you'd asked one of my grandmothers, I was very cheeky. Okay. <laughs> so I always remember her shouting at me and telling me off and saying how cheeky I was and that kind of stuff. And if you asked someone else, maybe they'd say, oh, he was very spirited and a performer, a sort of a natural performer, I suppose. My family were very much into performing. My mm. A lot of my family were involved in like the amateur operatic society yeah. scene, which is very big in Wales, big all over the country, but it was very big in Wales. And it was a very social thing. People who were frustrated performers or enjoyed performance but were never going to be professionals would get involved in these societies. Mm. So you'd be able to perform and share a love of... Musical theatre, or whatever, but also just have a social network. And it was a big deal, particularly in working class communities, I think. So my family were very into that. So from a very early age, I was aware that performance was a thing and that people rewarded you for that. Like you got family points if you were to get up and do a little bit. I'd see a lot of childhood photographs of me. There's one of me sitting on the settee with my grandpa. And we've both got pipes in our mouth and we're both wearing dressing gowns. And I'm doing a sort of, I'm playing a part already, you know, and yeah. that's me at four or five. Yeah. My uncle, my mother's brother, was a very good football player, local football player. Mm. But no real history of it. I think quite early on, it became clear that I was very good for yeah. my age. And I used to then play football with the older boys in school and that kind of thing. Around the age of sort of nine, ten, I realised... And other people realised that I was very Mm. good. At the end of our street was at my school at the time, my junior school. So when I wasn't in school and playing football in the breaks and all that kind of stuff, I would go back to the school when school had finished. And I would go and play football on my own in the yard just for hours until it was too dark to see the ball. And then if anyone else was around, I would play football with them and we Mm. would organise games. And all I did every waking hour was that. And I would read up about it and watch football. And And you nearly got
1: scouted for Arsenal youth team.
0: Yeah, we were on holiday on the Isle of Wight at Pontins and very young Tony Adams, who later became captain of Arsenal and England, was there on holiday with his father. And his father did scouting for Arsenal as well and that kind of stuff. And he saw me playing and then arranged a couple of games at the holiday camp with the local team and stuff. And then offered me a place at the Arsenal youth team. And I didn't know at the time he spoke to my dad. And and I only overheard later when we got home a conversation between my dad and, and some friends that I heard what had happened. And of course, I was gutted because my mum and dad said that wasn't going to be mm. possible because I was too young to go and live in London at the time. My mum and dad couldn't live there because of work and that kind of stuff.
1: Are you glad they said no at the time?
0: Yeah, yeah, I am. Now, absolutely. Yeah, I am. And I'm not sure it would have made me happy long term. I'm still able to think my best years are ahead of me, Annie, <laughs> in in what I do. So I am glad it worked out the it's way it It's the
1: did, joy yeah. of acting, isn't it? So you were an obsessive kid in, in terms of just getting, really zooming in on what you were into, football, then acting. What about girls? Because you had a heartbreak situation in your teens, right?
0: Yes. Oh, yes, girls. <laughs> funny enough, I remember it's that move back to Port Albert and being the new kid in the school and that kind of stuff, in retrospect... The girls were quite interested in me. I was the new boy, and there was a sort of You're an this interest.
1: Exotic there. guy coming yes, in. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, with with me scouse accent <laughs> and all that. And I was quite good at drawing, and I was good at football. At the time, I wasn't aware of that stuff. I was just mm. being me. But I can look back at it and go, I must have caused a little bit of a ripple when I arrived yeah. there. I remember very much being aware of like girls focusing on me now and again and being thrilled by that and quite scared and intimidated by that so I remember that being a thing then as I went to comprehensive school around 11 or 12 I suppose that was when I started getting like interested in girls I was doing all right because I was very good at the football but I also was now starting to do school plays as well Mm. and so no one could really take the mickey out of me for doing the school plays, because usually the lads who were doing sport would make fun of the the boys who were doing the other side. They couldn't do that because I was better than them at the football, so they couldn't make fun of me for doing the theatre, and vice versa. So I did quite well in that respect. But I suppose I was also, looking back on it, again, I was also probably quite a bit of a catch at the time. But I remember a girlfriend, she was an older woman, she was in the second year okay. of comprehensive school, and I was in the first year. So Why what, would I?
1: she would have been, what, 13? You would have been 12 or something? Yeah,
0: yeah. 11 and 12 or 12 and 13, yeah, around yeah. that sort of age. So I remember having, like, my first slow dance at a disco with her. Yeah. And that, and I was, you know, that was incredibly exciting. I was totally petrified of her, yeah. and she would show up in the playground, and be like, "You come with me." We would meet up at a playground near where I lived, and that kind of. I mean, it was all very innocent. And then I remember something happened one day. We were in the local sweet shop. She came in, and I remember she just finished with me, and I didn't know why. And it was very shocking. Yeah. But that set a template for later.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so by the time I did, was having like proper girlfriends and that, or starting to have proper girlfriends, I got to about 14, 15. And then I met someone in the youth theatre by the time I joined the youth theatre. Mm. And that was all so exciting and new. Mm. And you do these residential courses where everyone would stay in this big house and it was dormitories and you would rehearse in the days and then do performances at the end of it in local theatres. And it was incredibly exciting totally fell in love with uh, a girl there who was a couple of years older than me, I remember. Now, I just assumed that once the two week course was over, we would just be boyfriend and girlfriend and that would be it. And of course that wasn't quite the case. And she, it turned out, had an actual boyfriend in real life. I was heartbroken when I discovered that this wasn't gonna be. That wrong is with
1: rough. Me. I'm sorry, that is it rough. It was rough.
0: Yeah, it was rough. And I think that did affect me for a long time because of this sort of obsessive nature. And here's the negative side of it, I suppose. I was obsessing about this. I wasn't just upset or heartbroken. I was obsessing about it. And it took over kind of everything. And I remember doing my English mock O level and the essay question, whatever it was, I don't even remember what the title of it was. I just wrote about this girl and what was going oh on. Like that was god. that became my essay, yeah. So right, and in I remember the thick of your teens, in the thick of yeah.
1: hormones and oh my yeah. god. Yeah.
0: Now what did happen was that I remember at one point thinking, I am now gonna make myself into someone that this doesn't happen to again. Got it. So I did change. There was a sort of a fundamental change that happened around that time where I started to make myself into someone Teflon proof to that and I became yeah. a bit of a player then after that yeah. for a while like I think that yeah. was like no one's gonna hurt me like that again and in fact I got back with that same girl wow. we did have a relationship and I ended up breaking up with her oh my
1: god yeah you it wasn't revenge it. yeah, yeah
0: it, it wasn't conscious revenge but looking back on it, I think there was clearly something there was unconscious that. revenge then. yeah I Definitely. think so and yeah. yeah and I think I was a bit like that for quite a long time underneath everything I think I was a little bit like I'm not gonna get hurt
1: do you make it hard to trust?
0: people. My family are wonderful, supportive, lovely people, but not the most emotionally expressive. That makes it sound like they're cold. They're not cold, but we didn't talk about feeling in that way so much. People felt a lot. It was it was very emotional family. And Especially very as an, ac- an
1: actor, just being able to express feelings must have come yeah. easier to you, did it? Yes and no.
0: I was having a lot of feelings as a teenager at that time, but I didn't really have much of an outlet for it because I hadn't got to the point with acting where... I had an almost pure vessel for expressing those feelings. I wasn't a good enough actor yet to do that. It was just a sort of splurge of half showing off to try and meet girls. and It certainly wasn't that kind of way of being able to process emotions. So I didn't really know where to put any of this stuff that Mm. was going on. The lesson I learned was if you really fall for someone, There is the chance that they will hurt you in this way. I think that affected me in all kinds of ways that took a very long time to unravel. Because for a long time, that sort of served me. At that Mm. time, certainly the bad boy. And and I'm not saying I was a bad boy, but Mm. like, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm going to do the dumping if that's going to, all that kind of stuff. And it served me for a long time. And then, of course, it stopped serving me. Because then when I started to try and have actually serious, proper relationships, Mm. I couldn't work out why things weren't Quite working out the way I'd want to, and mm. and I realised there's a very complicated set of feelings going on under here mm. that I can trace back to all kinds of things. But certainly that was part of it. That feeling of if you, and I think this is true for everyone, isn't it? if you've been hurt once or disappointed once, there's always got part of you that's going to be yeah. defending against that. And the danger is that you ultimately then deny yourself. A really extraordinary experience because you're scared of what might happen if you have that, so you have to be brave about it don't you and yeah. and that is the hardest thing is to walk into the jaws of hurt and disappointment potentially in order to have an opportunity to find the treasure thats yeah. that's in there.
1: Let's talk about some of your adult changes, because, again, you've had so much change in adulthood as an actor, the moving around situationally. But just the move from Port Talbot to London to attending RADA. the idea of RADA is so intimidating to me, even as an adult. What was it like entering that world as a young Welshman without a lot of world experience?
0: It's funny, you know, because there's a place just near Cardiff called Radar. (laughs) <laughs> and when I used to say, I'm going to RADA, people would say, oh, big move to Cardiff. I was like, no. RADA, the drama school <laughs> in London. Yeah, that was, well, number of things. I think part of me just shut down a little bit. I think I just numbed a bit of myself mm. in order to deal with it. I was clearly freaking out underneath. Mm. But by that point, part of my personality, I think, that I had developed was on the surface, I'm good with everything. I can handle anything. I'm confident. I've got no worries. I never show vulnerability. I'm just like, I'm the person who's dealing with everything. And underneath, just the legs are kicking, emotionally like the swan. The swan. Just freaking out, Yeah. yeah. And so I think the other people at drama school with me, would have seen someone who seemed to be really on top of it all really knows what he's doing not being freaked out everyone else is feeling anxious and scared and worried and here's this guy who's just like sailing along and of course that was the other thing was that when I got to drama school partly I think I remember feeling oh my god everyone's gonna be so amazing I'm gonna be the bottom of the class and all that and then I got there and realized that actually I had this amazing training already with the youth theatre that Mm. I'd come from and had incredibly supportive family and come from a local community that was very supportive of it as well because I came from a place where Richard Burton had come from and Anthony Hopkins had come from so even though I came from this sort of working class steel town there was a real respect for acting there Mm -hmm. so I had all the benefits of of that I didn't have any kind of insecurities really about the acting side of things other than thinking oh my god everyone's going to be That plus 100 compared to me. But then, of course, I got there and realized that not everyone came from supportive families. Not everyone had the background of the youth theater. Not everyone came from a supportive culture and and all Mm. that. And I just, I flourished in this place. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Mm. Doing what I'd always wanted to do for, you know, every day of my life. So we got to second year. And that was when we did do our first public performances. We did a production of Oedipus which I had already done with my youth theater before right. I got to drama school. So I knew the play. And I remember thinking, clearly, I'm going to be cast as Oedipus. Yeah. And lo and behold, I was Everywhere. cast as Oedipus. I was like, of course, it's all going perfectly to plan. And I will now give the greatest performance of <laughs> Oedipus that anyone has ever given, certainly someone who's only 19 years old. And I will be recognized as, the, you know, the new great acting messiah. And I rehearsed the play. And I did it exactly the way I used to do it in youth theatre, where I would go home, I would learn my lines, I would work out the best way to say each line, the most impressive way, the most clever, dazzling way to do each line and each scene, totally disconnected from what any other actor might be doing. And I would do that, and people would be incredibly impressed, obviously. And then I would be, as I say, carried shoulder-high through the streets of London. And we do the first public performance, and I gave what I thought was, like, my absolute best version of this. And... There was no being carried shoulder high. In fact, there was nothing. There was no real reaction one way or another. It was just like, yeah, that's, there we are. That's another performance that another drama student has done. And here are some notes, everybody. And other teachers would react and criticize certain things. And I couldn't handle it. I could not. I was. It didn't make sense to me. That is not how people had reacted to me. I remember going home after... I think the second performance or something, because we only did about three or four performances, right. and I just broke down. I started crying. I just yeah. couldn't handle it. I remember coming in to do the, the last performance, I think, and sitting in the little dressing room. I couldn't stop crying, mm. and people were like, it clearly freaked out by me. And I didn't know if I'd be able to get on stage. And I got on stage and the play began with me on my own on stage. Oedipus sort of looking out across his land and there's a plague and he's talking about how awful everything is. And I remember getting on the stage and before the lights went up, I was still crying on stage. And then it began and I somehow got through it. And then when we finished the performances, I had to take time off school. I, I left classes. I just stayed in the place I was renting at the time and didn't come in. It was like I'd hit a ceiling, I think. That's what it was, is that... I'd given my best the way I acted, the way I believed you acted. I'd done my absolute best and it hadn't done what I thought it would do. My life had stopped following the path I thought it was going to follow and I didn't know what to do about it. Ultimately, what ended up happening was there was one of the drama school teachers used to do classes on a Saturday for professional actors, like nothing to do with the drama school, but used one of the rehearsal rooms in RADA. And I asked if I could come in and just sit at the back and watch as a way to reintroduce myself to it. And this was after a couple of weeks of just being away. And I started doing that on a Saturday and I just started to completely change the whole way I thought about acting and approached it. And rather than thinking about working out the best way you do things on being clever i started to realize oh no you have to be in the moment with another actor you have to yeah. like respond to what they're doing you have to be brave enough to not yeah. have a plan necessarily and i built up a whole new way of approaching acting and off i went you know and and that was a massive change for me everything i learned from then on and the way i approached things was completely different and is the basis of of everything i've done ever since it's a difficult painful experience at times but i've learnt Sometimes in order to create positive change in your life, it can feel like a disaster, a crisis. Positive change isn't just linear and a straight line. We come into this world with baggage. We accumulate baggage sometimes through no fault of our own. And in order to get to where we want to get to, Mm. we have to let go of stuff and letting go of things can be really difficult at times and, and it, sometimes it can come as a shock and other times you can be helped through that in as pain-free a way as possible but most of the time we experience it as this terrible thing has happened in my life but when you look back at it in retrospect maybe you go, actually things change for the better because of that.
1: You built up, through no fault of your own because of the way you were treated you built up a kind of self-confidence in what you did and then it was like yeah. the shedding of that and
0: Yeah, and look, very much yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, definitely, wow. and that was that's always hard, isn't it? Like, oh my god, yeah. Part of being a performer, any performer, means that you have to have a sensitivity in order to perform stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, any performer has to has be a self-aware. sort of a sensitive, yeah, yeah, self aware and be able to feel things quite mm. strongly. That's part of what being a performer is. Now, the flip side of that is, as a performer, you are constantly being judged as well. Mm-hmm. So when people judge you harshly or criticize you. Because of that sensitivity, like yeah, it's really hard to yeah. hear that. As well. And that balancing act is a real tightrope walk mm. for performers, I think. Like, how do you continue to have the sensitivity that you need to do what you do, but at the same time deal with the knocks and the criticisms and the rejections and all that kind of stuff how do you not shut down that sensitivity in order to deal with that and then not have it to do what you do in the first place that is a tough thing yeah Yeah. psychologically that's that's very peculiar I'm a big fan of David Bowie that idea of changes Mm. of the man the performer who puts on a persona and then lets it go the chameleon that aspect you can see why that is attractive because it is about shedding skins and the mask is a a form of ego that you can then Mm. rip off and let go it it reminds you that performing ego life is about death and rebirth you know you you die a thousand deaths and that is about the ego i think you have to go through these little deaths of self in order to grow and and to become who you were meant to be. I see that reflected in someone like David Bowie who used that Mm -hmm. consciously.
1: Let's talk about another adult change, another relationship, the mother of your oldest daughter and that Mm. having a kind of, as you mentioned, a kind of death and a rebirth in a way.
0: I think anyone who's had a major relationship, especially where children are involved Mm. and then that breaks down for every reason. It's a difficult experience to go through anyway, no matter what your circumstances are. And it's always messy and always complicated and people are always going to want to lay blame and ultimately for the vast majority of time there's no real blame it's just hard life is just hard and so going through that experience of a relationship breaking down and having a a young child and then because of my daughter and her mum living in another country having to make a life in a new place whilst going through that whole experience which is difficult enough Mm -hmm. that was really tough so I would just sit in diners reading Stephen King books and and then wait to go and be able to see my daughter. I had no work visa to stay in America. So every time I left, I had to go back to Britain, obviously, after a certain amount of time. I never knew if I would be allowed to come back in again. So I ended up having to get work in Britain, obviously, because I wasn't really getting any work in America. It really made me question certain things about myself. Just living in Los Angeles as an actor is a whole other thing. Everyone's an actor in Los Angeles. Yeah. Everyone who's serving you a meal is an actor. Everyone's got a script. Yeah. That's the way it is. And, and the whole kind of ideology there is very different because it's not just that everyone's an actor. Everyone's in the business is the yeah. way to think about it. And it is a business there in a way that it isn't mm. the same sort of business here. It fuses into your brain and your soul a bit, Mm. that business way of looking at it. It taps into all kinds of insecurities and ego things and just desire for, sort of a voracious desire for success.
1: Because you're a competitive person, aren't you, naturally? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. So you want to succeed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in that period of time, I remember becoming aware of all this other side of myself that I'd not had to really deal with as an actor and I had a choice I could either ignore it and pretend it wasn't there or look at it and I started trying to look at it and what, and about, it, and the it context, what about
1: the context of the fact that you're the mother of your daughter was also an actress and you were in the media glare was that yeah, did that yeah. not affect you in a big way coming from England to such a shallowness of celebrity and cameras and paps and all of that
0: that was hard particularly because when I did do interviews or things like that for whatever projects I was working on, things did start to go well right. for me again. And I did restart and I and I did make a success of it eventually. And as that was happening, when I would do interviews and things, I remember just... I kept fucking up. I'd say the wrong thing in the interview. It took me a long time to learn. Just don't talk about it. If, you, if there's the chance of you fucking up, just don't talk about it. And, of course, people are going to want to try and get you to talk about stuff because that's how they make their of career. Course. But just don't do it. And when you hear people going, oh... Actors just come out with the same bland surface thing. There's a reason for that. Because if you've ever said something that you really regret afterwards and it's hurt people that you care about, and you didn't mean to do that, anyway, as time went on, weirdly, what ended up happening was that the thing that really opened doors for me was a job that I ended up doing back in Britain that ultimately yeah. opened doors for me which was The Deal which was the first time I played Tony Blair and it was written by Peter Morgan and directed by Stephen Frears. We did that and that was for TV and that did very well but then as a consequence of that the same team made The Queen yeah. which I played Blair in again that ended up being nominated for Academy Awards and it changed my life and career in all kinds of ways partly because it Introduced me to Peter Morgan, who yeah. then I worked with a lot. Damned United, Frost Nixon, right. The Queen. He wrote all that stuff and it introduced me to a team of people, including Stephen Frears, certain producers that we worked together again and again and made my name. And And the thing mm. that people I suppose most know me for came as a result of, of of all that. And I very nearly didn't do it. I remember when the opportunity to do The Queen came up. I had said that I was going to do a play, I think. And I get very concerned about letting people down. And I remember everyone saying to me, oh, just drop the play, do the film. Yeah. And, and I was like, no, I can't do that, I can't do that. And eventually I remember Stephen Frears, the director, calling me up and saying, I really think you should reconsider. And everyone could see what the choice should be. And ultimately it was fine and the play changes its dates but I was so worried about oh but I've given my word and I can't go back on this and funnily enough years later when we did Frost Nixon a similar thing happened which I look back on now and go what (laughs) were you thinking I'd done the play of Frost Nixon for a year and a half or something and then we did the movie of it and Peter Morgan who wrote it had fought to keep me as Frost Frost in the movie because there was a lot of pressure to get you know Mm. much bigger star name and all that and we do the film, and it is a big hit and a big success. And then it comes to we're gonna try and push for Academy Award nominations, Oscar nominations, and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of like chicanery behind the scenes, or not chicanery, but yeah. there's a lot of stuff that people generally don't know about. You have to make a decision of who you're gonna push, and all there's a lot right. of politics right it. Yeah. But anyway, I remember being told look, Frank, Langella, who plays Nixon in it, he is clearly going to be a contender for Best Actor. Michael, even though you are the lead role in this, there's two lead roles, but yeah. Frost is the sort of lead role. We think you should go for Best Supporting Actor, and you'll have a big shot at that, and then the film will get Best Film nomination, Frank will get Best Actor nomination, you'll get Best Supporting Actor nomination, Peter will get Best Screenplay. So I went, nah, that's, I can't do that. It's not a supporting role, it's a lead role. And I know... That that reduces my chances of getting a nomination, but yeah. I can't do it. I always felt it was a bit craven when I saw people right. putting themselves in Best Supporting Actor category when yeah. it wasn't a supporting role. Yeah. I felt like no, that's that's so desperate to yeah. get a nomination. And I remember again, everyone going, "I really think we should <laughs> rethink this, Michael. I really think." And I was like, "No, point of principle. I can't do that. I can't do that. And of course, I didn't get a nomination. <laughs> and I remember thinking back and going, "Oh." Um- It makes a big difference if you get an Academy Award nomination. It really does. Because, like, you watch commercials or trailers on telly for films and it'll say, starring, Academy Award winner, da-da-da, Academy Award nominee, da-da-da. It becomes, like, a thing. And that was my biggest shot at getting an Academy Award nomination. And I was like, no, (laughs) no, can't do that, no.
1: You're famous now for playing real people. Do you ever look at them the type of people that you're asked to inhabit, like your Brian Clough's, your Kenneth Williams, your Tony Blair's, and think like there's some sort of thread running through these people. Like, why is it me that's asked to do these people Mm. specifically?
0: The ones that Peter wrote, Peter Morgan wrote, so Blair, Frost, certainly. They're sort of people who have an element of performance about them. There's an element of there's one thing on the surface yeah. that has great facility and ease socially mm. and yet there's something underneath that is much more insecure and not as at ease. Mm. I used to say to Peter, we've done these things where there's two characters pitted against each other whether it's Blair and the Queen Elizabeth or Frost and Nixon or whatever it is and You always give me the part that's less interesting than the other one. The Queen is the interesting part and the Queen. Nixon is the interesting part. Not interesting, but they're the kind of monster. There's the hero and the monster, like in The Great Myths. And I'm the hero who the audience kind of follows the journey of. It's the monster that we're drawn to. And and Nixon is the Minotaur mm. at the heart of the labyrinth in Frost Nixon. And the Queen is the monster. I don't mean she's I, monsters. I get it, you know I get She's the They are the ones who get the Oscar nominations <laughs> and, the, and all those and he said, don't worry, the next one it'll be different. And so Damned United, Clough was yes. both. In yes. a way Clough was the monster and he was the hero of that one. Yeah. Even though, it, again, it was two characters. It was Peter Taylor that Tim Spall played so brilliantly and Clough. But Clough was an amalgamation of those two sides. But yeah, I think the thread that's through all all those characters is very much that they have this this ease to them and i think that's that's certainly what peter mm. would go to me for and then there's something else going on underneath and i think it was those qualities that he saw i think in me
1: you came back to wales which you never thought you were going to do. And then something shifted in terms of what you wanted to put into the world. And and that, that's a very significant change. You've changed well, for good. Yeah.
0: So it, it actually, it wasn't that I came back to Wales. I, it was, you did the passion, I did a sorry. project in Wales. Yeah. yeah. So I was spending a lot of my time going back and forth, essentially, between yeah. Los Angeles and, and the UK. For years and years, there have been talk about Wales should have its own National Theatre of Wales. And what would that be like? And who would, what would they do? And who would run it? Blah, blah, blah. And there was so much controversy about that. And it never happened. Anyway, it was finally going to happen. And I got a, a message saying, would you be interested in coming and talking about doing something in the opening season for National Theatre of Wales? And I remember thinking, oh God, they're <laughs> going to want me to do Hamlet in Cardiff. And oh, the arrogance of yeah. that. But I was like, oh, I'm not interested, blah, blah. Anyway, I turn up to meet this uh, lovely woman, Lucy, who was the sort of dramaturg, helping put together what this season would be. And we sat down in an empty Italian restaurant in Cardiff and she started talking about what they wanted to do. She said, what we're looking to do is productions that are much more connected to the community mm. that it's happening in. And we're looking at not necessarily doing things in theatres. We're looking at pushing what theatre is and how it can be performed and the, the relationship between the audience and, and all this kind of stuff. Cut a long story short, I found myself going, Well, I could do a new version of the Passion play that used to happen in Margam Park when I was growing up. And that had a big effect on me. And I'm not really religious, but we could do a sort of new modern day version, sort of based on the Passion of Christ, but not religious. Uh, and we could get the whole community to take part in it. And it could happen all over the town. And I remember I found myself saying this sort of stuff and then really regretting
1: it <laughs> when just I got thinking, home. Why yeah. did you-
0: what
1: thinking, Why? Thinking,
0: What am I doing? Do it. I'm thinking, obviously, tomorrow morning, I'll call Lucy and say, I was only joking. (laughs) I'm certainly not doing that. And I just kept putting off making that call. But I would keep having another idea or another thing would pop up. And so slowly, the balance between me thinking, I'm never going to be able to do this and me thinking, oh, we've got something actually interesting. That balance changed and, and it became impossible to make that call. So it took a couple of years to develop, and I worked on it with all kinds of people. It was a massive team effort, ultimately. And there were about 2,000 local people in the Portalbot area who took part in it. And it became one performance that was nonstop for 72 hours wow. that took place all over Portalbot. My aim was to try and involve every community group, every organization, every strata of society yeah. in the area to be involved in it in some way, and also part of my sort of plan was that that people wouldn't really know what it was they were involved in yeah. until they were doing it. It would have the impact on them in the moment of doing mm-hmm. it of going oh that's what we 're doing. One of the things that was life changing about it was that i got to know the community that I had grown up in in Patelba in a completely different way because I wanted to go and talk to people and find out what they were doing and to celebrate them. So to tell a story that like we're familiar with because it's based on Jesus and Easter and all that, but to completely invert it and say, no, the interesting figure is not the Jesus figure. It's the other people who are doing all the things that we associate with Jesus. It made me realise what's going on in yeah. in that community, yeah. in my community, in every community. And the challenges that people are dealing with, the difficulties that people are trying to overcome. I look back on it now and go, I had no exit plan. We did that performance and I literally left Patalbert the next day and went to the Cannes Film Festival and off I went with my life. And meanwhile, people in Patalbot who had this sort of life-changing experience through being involved in this and telling a story about themselves and their community... Well, like, we want to keep this going. They called it the passion effect. So for years afterwards, I had these connections with the organizations in Patalbot. I was aware of what was going on. I was aware of things disappearing. Every time I came home, that one had gone because they didn't have right. money anymore. This had been cut, that had been cut. And people would ask, would you come and have a photograph taken? Would you come? And so that the newspaper will yeah. write about us. Yeah. And, that. and so I was doing a lot of that not just in the Patalba community, but communities throughout Wales, throughout Britain, throughout the world, actually, because mm. I started getting interested in who is being effective in their community, who is dealing with these issues that keep yeah. coming up again and again that I hear about. And it got to the point where the amount of time and money I was spending on that side of things was taking over my life. I was realizing that one of the most precious commodities I had was time and I wasn't able to give the amount of time that I felt I wanted to give and that these issues deserved. My daughter was old enough. Now she was 18. She was leaving home. She was going off to university and to have her life away from home. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't tied to that place in the same way. I'd been doing a TV series in America for four or five years up to that point. That was coming to an end. I realized that I had personal emotional connections to where I was, but there was ultimately nothing stopping me And so there was a sense that what was going on in the world at the time, so we're talking around 2015, 16, Brexit referendum, Trump election, a lot of tumult, a lot of upheaval, a lot of change in the world, a lot of quite scary things, others quite hopeful and inspiring things, but a lot of challenge. And I thought this is the time for me to roll my sleeves up a little Mm. bit and use what I've got to try and do my bit to help what's going on in communities like Patelba. Mm. And that is going to require the acting side of my life to now support this. That will now become the engine, essentially, Mm -hmm. to allow me to be able to be as effective as I possibly can in this other area. And so that's what I did. Got reported as Michael Sheen turns his back on Hollywood to fight Nazis in Port Albert, which is not at all what I was going for. It has always been and still is all about trying to address the unfairness that I see that is Why should the people in the community that I come from and that I now live in again, why should they have less opportunity than the people in communities that I find myself in when I'm working a lot of the time? And I know that those people are no more worthy of opportunity than the people in the community that I come from. And yet there is this inequality and disparity. So when people talk about having issues around debt and money because they've been... Taking out loans with payday lenders and then are exploited and there's terrible business practices yeah. and they get into massive problems and then that affects their mental health and their physical health and their family and you know and all the rest I'll do something about that yeah. that's where I'll focus on it's not very glamorous, but I founded something called the end High cost credit Alliance and tried to work with people to bring about an end to that and the acting funds it yeah. not just because of the money I'm earning, which does allow it, but also it's because of the profile sure. and that sort of came to a to a ahead in one way last year like literally exactly a year ago because one of the things i'd been working on was i think called the homeless world cup which uh takes place every year it's a football tournament for people who have experienced homelessness or social exclusion of Mm -hmm. some form a different country hosts it each year and so i had through my involvement with an organization called street football wales which is a sort of grassroots version of it where it creates football matches for people who are Socially excluded in all kinds of ways. Um, I got involved with them and then I heard about this Homeless World Cup. And the first one I went to was in Oslo with the Welsh teams and saw what it was all about. And I was just blown away. It's like it's potentially transformative for people. They have this extraordinary experience and it can change people's lives in all kinds of ways. And so I was like, we need to bring this to Wales. So cut a long story short, we did. It was all happening. And just around this time last year, we had about six weeks to go before it was on it just all started to fall apart. How? Well, it was discovered that we thought we had about one and a half million pounds that had been raised to fund it. And it was discovered that actually we had nothing. There was no money. And there were 500 of the most vulnerable people in the world on, essentially on their way to Cardiff for this transformational once-in-a-lifetime experience. And we had a, a city council that was heavily involved in it, a university, all kinds of institutions that were delivery partners who thought that the situation was all fine. And I was faced with, right, how committed to this are you? (laughs) You've said you're putting everything on the line for this. Are you going to? And again, I was advised by all kinds of people, get out of it. All right, you're going to have to take a lot of shit for this not happening, but you cannot try and make this work. You have to back away from this and just deal with it. And I was like, I am not doing that. I am not doing so that. You, so you put up your own money? I will be paying for it for years. Wow. I put everything I had right then and there in my bank accounts. Like everything I had in order to have cash flow literally for the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And in order to keep everyone on board so that it would happen because, you know, me saying I'm going to do everything I can to make this happen doesn't necessarily mean that other people, other people have got They're answerable to all kinds of people. I had to find a way to give confidence to them to stay on board so that it would still happen. So not only did I have to put everything that was in my bank accounts on the line to just pay the bills today that we're still owing, I also had to find a way to guarantee that there would be money further down the line to be able to get us over the line eventually. Anna, my partner, was also pregnant. We also had a baby coming, and there I was giving everything I had away at a time when we were like trying to set up a home for our new baby coming it was a stressful stress. I was trying to get people to, to donate money. I wasn't just going, right, I'm going to give everything to it. Yeah. I was trying to get other people to give money to it as well. I was doing reshoots on the Doolittle film. God. And I remember I was explaining to Robert Downey Jr. the situation I was in, and he said, I will give you some money.
1: Yeah.
0: And he said, I'll try and find out how much money I can give you. And I went to do the first take of the reshoot, and I was crying at the beginning of the take because of the of how moved I was that Robert was going to help me out a bit. I was able to get but people like James Corden, Mumford & Sons, Chris Martin at Coldplay, Bill Kenwright, who's the chairman of Everton Football Club, Sarah Silverman, Robert Downey Jr. gave money at a time when I was up against it. Yeah. And just the fact they were able to help yeah. made such a difference to me, knowing that I wasn't just on my own in this mm. as well. Once word got out, people, I remember a taxi driver going in Cardiff going... I got out of the station and he went, no, put the money. I'm not going to charge you. Put that money towards the Homeless World Cup. Unbelievable. There was a slightly scary moment where I remember thinking, I've got earning potential. I owe a lot of money now, but I can earn money. And then COVID hit and suddenly there's no work. That was a slightly (laughs) nerve-wracking, knowing how much money I still owe. But nevertheless, I was like, no, there's a kind of a confidence that comes with going, I am doing the right thing. This can work. I can turn myself into a sort of personal social enterprise by I earn money from doing this and I put it all into what Mm -hmm. I'm doing at any given time and if at some point like happened I hope that situation doesn't happen again but if at some point you go you've got to give everything then you can do it you can do it I mean I wouldn't necessarily recommend everyone do that but there is a sort of There's a liberation that I've found. If you're in a position to be able to do that kind of stuff, then you can do it. I would recommend people going, Mm. what what are your resources? What have you got that is available that you can use? And you can probably go a bit further than you thought you can if you're in a fortunate position like me and do it.
1: Oh my God, that is the perfect way to end a very inspiring conversation. Thank you so much.
0: It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much to Michael Sheen. Loved chatting to him. And I really hope you enjoyed that episode and indeed the whole series. I would love if you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. That way you'll be informed as soon as the next series drops. I've got some amazing names. I've got a list basically uh, of people that I want to approach for the next series and I'm really excited to start kind of making some calls and seeing who we can get to come on and chat. So yeah thank you so much for listening to Series 2 of Changes. If you missed any episodes go and check them out. The full All two series are ready to listen back to whenever you like, and I hope it can serve as a companion during this strange time and during the rest of a year that we'll never ever forget. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with support from Sarah Miles for Rethink Audio. Take care and see you next series.
0: Planning for your next trip?